Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
was taking place at his tomb. It was said that a dead child had been brought back to life and cripples made whole. And songs comparing him to Thomas a Becket and Simon de Montfort became widely popular. By 1325, Lancaster was being linked in the popular imagination to St. George, and there were calls for his canonization. Lancaster was proving almost as much of a threat in death as he'd been in life. In some alarm, the king had the tablet removed and forbade the pilgrimages, placing a guard over Lancaster's tomb to keep the people away. But many defied him and continued to flock to the priory at Pontefract and also to the denuded pillar in St. Paul's. In 1323, 2,000 people, finding themselves barred from leaving offerings at the tomb, attacked the king's guards and killed two of them. This is some measure of the strength of feeling against the dispenser-led government and a weak and vicious king. On March 3, 1323, Andrew Harkley was executed for treason. Shaken and disgusted like Beaumont by what had happened at Byland, he had taken it upon himself to make terms with the Scots, with a view to recognising Bruce as their king, something that Edward would never countenance. But Hartley was more of a realist than the king. The Pope himself recognised Bruce's sovereignty that year. And his crime had been committed in the interests of peace, for he was convinced that this long and gruelling war could not be won. Later it transpired that Queen Isabella herself held similar views. Hartley's punishment was to suffer the full horrors of a traitor's death, although he died protesting he was no traitor. Thereafter, Pembroke and Dispenser were active in negotiating the 13-year truce with Bruce that was concluded on May 30th. There would be no more fighting for the rest of Edward's reign. That same day, Parliament assembled at Bishop's Thorpe near York, and Henry de Beaumont, the Queen's old friend, was arrested. Angry at the King's censure of his brother, the Bishop of Durham, he had refused to give any advice on negotiating the Scottish truce, and when he appeared in Parliament he was told to leave. Nothing would please me more, he retorted, at which he was apprehended for contumacy. Isabella may have been a witness to this scene. She and Edward were at Selby on June 10th and at York on the 3rd and 4th of July. Possibly there had been a patching up of sorts between them, but the arrest of Beaumont would have been cause for further resentment on both sides, especially when Beaumont refused to swear an oath of loyalty to Dispenser and was consequently cast into prison. After his removal from court, Isabella would have felt even more isolated. On August 1st, 1323, Roger Mortimer made a dramatic escape from the tower. A feat that had been achieved only once before by Ranaf Flambard in 1101. That day was Roger's birthday and the feast day of St. Peter Advincula, the patron saint of the tower garrison. Evidently, the rigours of Mortimer's imprisonment had been relaxed, for by now he had won over the sympathies of Gerard Dolspey, the sub-lieutenant of the tower, who had brought him a crowbar and a pick so that he could bore a hole in the stone wall of his cell. It was with Dolspey's connivance that on this night Mortimer hosted a great feast, inviting there Sir Stephen de Seagrave, constable of the tower, and his own guards. But the wine was drugged, and the guests were soon in a comatose state. Once it was safe to do so, Dolspey helped Mortimer to escape through the hole in his cell, which appears to have been located in the Lanthorn Tower. This building stood next to the Hall Tower, now the Wakefield Tower, which had a guardroom downstairs and royal chambers upstairs. Beyond were the Great Hall and the Queen's apartments. Once through the hole, Mortimer and Dolspey found themselves in the King's kitchen. They climbed up the Great Chimney, to the roof of the hall tower, from which they apparently crossed to the leads of the adjacent St. Thomas's Tower. 
Using rope ladders, they managed to scale down the stout wall of the outer bailey to the wharf. Dorspey had ensured that a boat was waiting to take him and Mortimer across the Thames to the Surrey shore, where some of Roger's friends were waiting with horses. The small party then galloped through the night to Netley on the Hampshire coast. A boat carried them out to a waiting ship, which had been provided by a London merchant called Ralph de Bottom. She sailed for France the next day, landing in Normandy. Mortimer and his friends then made straight for Paris to seek the protection of the French king, who received him with great honour, provoking a bitter complaint from Edward II. Charles's warm reception of Mortimer must have been particularly galling to Dispenser, who had been driven out of France and placed under sentence of banishment in 1321 during his pirating days, and consequently had no love for the French. Even more galling was Charles's response to Edward's complaint. He said he would banish all the English exiles from France if the king would in turn banish any French exiles from England, meaning, of course, dispenser. Strickland quotes an old chronicle that asserts that the sleepy drink was provided by the queen for Mortimer's use and incorrectly claims that Mortimer swam across the Thames to the Surrey shore. The Queen, doubting much of his strength for such an exploit, as he had been long in confinement. No other original source claims that Isabella was involved in Mortimer's escape, and there's no evidence that she was even in London, let alone residing in the Tower at this date. In fact, the first English writer to assert that Isabella helped Mortimer to escape was the dramatist Christopher Marlowe in Edward II, written in 1593. He was followed by Michael Drayton, whose claims appear in three plays written between 1596 and 1619. Nevertheless, many writers still follow Strickland in asserting that Isabella was Mortimer's accomplice. It's been argued that Dolspey, who had a responsible post, would not have put his career and even his life on the line to aid a landless traitor who could offer him nothing in reward unless he'd been promised the patronage of some important person, possibly Isabella. But that is perhaps to underestimate the convictions of both Mortimer and Dolspey. It may be that when Mortimer had finished cousining him, Dolspey was indeed prepared to risk all if it would help to bring down the dispensers, or he might have had reasons of his own for wishing to do so. Yet we cannot discount the possibility that Charles IV's warm reception of Mortimer was extended not just as a result of his antipathy towards the dispensers and his concerns about the way in which they were slighting his sister, but also on the basis of Isabella's own private recommendations. Charles cannot but have been aware of the dispenser's tyranny, and he must have seen, in Mortimer, their deadly foe, a means of somehow counteracting it and thus aiding Isabella. England was not then at war with France, so what other reason could Charles have had for welcoming such a notorious traitor? As for Isabella herself... She'd probably been instrumental in the commuting of the death sentence on Mortimer, and she'd certainly tried to assist his wife, possibly at his request. She'd probably realised by now that Mortimer was the only person capable of resisting the tyranny of the dispensers, and that, as such, he could prove very useful to her. By using her influence with her brother... She perhaps indirectly assisted in his escape, and if this is so, then she must have known about it in advance. Michael Drayton also claimed that Mortimer's ally, Bishop Alton, helped him to escape, a claim that's well supported by contemporary evidence. Adam Alton had been born on one of Mortimer's Herefordshire manors, had been elected Bishop of Hereford in 1317, and before that had spent most of his hitherto distinguished career at the Papal Curia. 
In recent years, he'd become a close friend and ally of Roger Mortimer, his patron. He'd sent men to assist Mortimer in the offensive on the dispenser lands and had staunchly supported the Mortimers in their attack on the dispensers in Parliament. Even now, when they lay in prison convicted traitors, he did not withdraw his support. On the contrary, he remained one of the most active opponents of the dispensers. Alton's reputation has suffered because of a piece of character assassination by the chronicler Geoffrey LeBaker, which is demonstrably untrue. Far from being as unscrupulous as Baker claims, Alton was a clever politician, lawyer and diplomat who took his ecclesiastical responsibilities seriously and genuinely deplored the misgovernment of Edward II and the dispensers and the embarrassment this caused him in European diplomatic circles. He also had an inflated respect for the dignity of popes and bishops and was a friend of the astute John XXII. Archbishop Reynolds held a high opinion of Alton's capabilities, but Alton's overt approval of Mortimer's acts of rebellion now made him a natural target for the king's wrath. In February 1324, in an unprecedented action against a bishop, Dispenser accused Alton in Parliament of treasonably having aided and counselled the enemies of the king, and of having provided the weapons and horses that had enabled Mortimer to escape. Relying on his episcopal immunity, Alton refused to answer the charges, declaring that he was only responsible to the Pope, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his fellow clergy. And when Edward ordered that he be committed into the custody of the Archbishop of Canterbury, he provoked a furor in the ecclesiastical nation, which led to Archbishops Reynolds and Melton and Alexander Bicknor, Archbishop of Dublin, placing Alton under their protection and threatening anyone who dared lay violent hands on him with excommunication. This was the first time that Reynolds, who had hitherto been a staunch friend, had defied Edward, and it must have come as a shock to him. Nevertheless, he had his justices declare Alton guilty, confiscated his estates and personal property, and kept him in custody. In April 1324, the king complained to the Pope about Alton's treason, and in May he demanded that he be deposed from his bishopric. But, as in the case of Burgish, the Pope refused to cooperate because of the lack of evidence to support the charge of treason. Edward had also called for the deposition of John of Droxenford, now Droxford, Bishop of Bath and Wells, a worldly and unscrupulous liberal who had also shown himself a friend to Mortimer and was a close associate of Alton and Burgish. Burgish, however, had been so frightened by the king's stern treatment of Alton that he'd made his groveling and insincere peace with Edward, offering his unconditional loyalty and obedience. This ploy helped him regain some of his former favour and the restoration of his temporalities. Yet it's unlikely that Alton himself arranged Mortimer's escape, although he may have solicited the Queen's help. Ian Mortimer, in his biography of his namesake, has put forward a compelling argument that it was Mortimer himself who masterminded it, relying for the practicalities on Dalspey and his own contacts in the City of London, where he enjoyed great popularity. Among the latter were two prominent citizens, Richard de Bethune and John de Gisors. It later emerged that, through them, Mortimer had been in contact with a number of influential supporters, including Alton, and that his escape had been part of a broader master plan to raise the dispenser's opponents. And if it had been Isabella who had interceded for Mortimer the previous year, then it was perhaps Alton who, knowing of this, had told her of the planned escape attempt and solicited her intercession with King Charles. Some chroniclers sickened by the oppressive regime of the dispensers, regarded Mortimer's escape as an act of God, claiming that he had, like St. Peter, been guided by an angel from his cell. 
Isabella may have viewed it in the same way. Now that he was at liberty, Roger was potentially the focus for a concerted opposition. In a panic, the king made strenuous efforts to find and recapture him, alive or dead, raising the hue and cry all over England, but he sent his officers to look in all the wrong places. Until the end of August, 1323, Edward was convinced that Mortimer would have gone to either Wales or Ireland. It was only in late September that he learned that his quarry was staying with his kinsfolk in Picardy, beyond the King of England's reach. Even in exile, Mortimer was to prove a deadly threat to the dispensers. In November, he sent an assassin from Saint-Omer to England to murder them and their closest associates. The attempt failed. The man got as far as London, but was then arrested and questioned. But it proved just how far Roger was prepared to go to be revenged upon those most hated enemies, and it gave rise to fears on Edward's part that Mortimer, succoured by Charles IV, who by then had quarrelled with Edward II, might even invade England for the purpose of destroying the dispensers. Edward now accused Charles and his uncle, Charles of Valois, of having assisted Mortimer in his escape. This has sometimes been cited as evidence that Isabella was also involved. But if Edward, and more to the point, the dispensers, had suspected as much, as a result of the comprehensive official investigations into the escape, they would surely have accused her of treason. Thereafter, Edward received conflicting intelligence of Mortimer's whereabouts. On December 6th, he was informed that Roger was in Eno and making his way to Germany. Then, around December 13th, came a report that he'd gone south to Toulouse with the Count of Boulogne. Isabella again disappears from the records until October 13th, 1323, Possibly she'd resumed her pilgrimage. She was with Edward at Litchfield on the 19th and 20th of December and then travelled south with him to Sutton Coalfield before going to Kenilworth Castle, formerly owned by Lancaster, where the court celebrated Christmas with great magnificence. In January, the king and queen were guests of dispenser at his castle on the River Trent at Hanley and in February they visited Gloucester and nearby Berkeley Castle before returning to London. Edward had now plunged into a fierce dispute with Charles IV. In September, Charles had summoned his brother-in-law to pay homage, a summons Edward managed to avoid complying with on the grounds that he couldn't at present safely leave his kingdom. In other words, the dispensers didn't want him to go fearing that their enemies would pounce in his absence. Although Charles agreed to postpone the homage until July 1324, his harbouring of Mortimer had led to mistrust and resentment on Edward's part. There was already a lot of ill-feeling on both sides when, in October, a dispute broke out over a bastide, or fortified town, that the French had begun building on the site of the priory of San Sardos, in the English-held Agenais. Edward's Gascon subjects reacted with hostility to this possibly illegal encroachment and attacked the Bastide, killing a French sergeant. Although Edward hadn't sanctioned the attack, indeed had known nothing about it, there were fears that this incident might lead to war between England and France, the very thing that Isabella's marriage had been intended to avoid. The French, however, were outraged, and Mortimer, seizing his opportunity, promptly offered his sword to Charles IV, traitorously volunteering to fight against his liege lord, Edward II, in Gascony. In January 1324, 